Hello and welcome to Lessons Learned with me, Laura Winter. In this podcast, I'm going to speak to star sports men and women about the moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight, the mistakes that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. Because more often than not, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. Well, here we go. Welcome along. I am Laura Winter, sports broadcaster, podcaster, obviously, host and journalist, and I'm so excited to be bringing you another season of my podcast. We are about to delve into the minds of brilliant sports people once again to discover the pinnacle moments that have shaped their professional and personal lives and the lessons they have learned along the way. Perhaps lessons we could all take some comfort and inspiration from too. I am about to speak to an Olympic cycling legend on the track, indeed one of Great Britain's most successful and decorated Olympians in history, a man who was undoubtedly at the forefront of the cycling fever that hit the UK in 2012. It is Sir Chris Hoy. This season in each episode, I also want you to be involved as well. So keep your eyes peeled on social media at Lessons Learned Pod and at Laura C. Winter and get your questions in. The best will be asked on the podcast. Keep listening to see if your question for Chris made it in. Lessons Learned is now out weekly, dropping every Monday. So make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. We are recording at the start of 2021, so unfortunately, like last series, due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, Chris and I spoke virtually, battling Wi-Fi and all sorts, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible for you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Well, I'm very excited to welcome Sir Chris Hoy as my guest today. Chris is an astonishing six-time Olympic gold medalist, 11-time world champion and two-time Commonwealth champion from a career on the bike spanning almost 20 years. Chris retired in 2013 and made a natural transition into the media as commentator, pundit and presenter. He also pursued another of his passions, moving into the world of motorsport racing in a variety of classes. The Scottish legend has also written 13 books and has created his own brand of kids' bikes. Chris, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for that very kind introduction. That was, uh, yeah, that was great. A glowing introduction. You've achieved such an enormous amount across actually a variety of different worlds, media, literature, on the track, in racing cars. I mean, is there any stopping you, Chris? (laughs) Well, you're you're being very kind. I think you're you're yeah, you're flattering my driving and my writing abilities. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I guess it's in I think in life it's all about finding things you enjoy and um, and you tend to work harder at them if you if you do enjoy them. So yeah, motorsport has been a fantastic um, you know hobby that's become a little bit more than a hobby since I retired from cycling and the writing too. I never ever thought I'd be able to write a book, um, let alone thirteen books. So yeah, who knows? Maybe some more to come. And the funny thing is, I'll let people know my, my bloopers and my mistakes. When I'd written that introduction, I luckily checked with you before. I'd written that you'd only authored two books. And then you said, yeah, well, but I had, actually, Laura. At one Laura. point, I'd only written two books. So that's correct. At the time, <laughs> at the time of um, that. The Wikipedia you know, entry in 2016, yes, exactly. that was correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, Laura, you very modestly went, actually, Laura, um, it's it's 13 books, in fact. Um, and I think the funniest place that we saw each other, Chris, obviously, we've seen each other around the track, your natural habitat, 
my natural habitat coming into sports presenting, working in cycling. I then got a job in rallycross and I remember speaking to the team before and they said, Laura, you, you've done a bit of work in cycling, haven't you? I went, yeah, yeah, absolutely love cycling. And they said, right, well, Chris Hoy is going to be racing <laughs> the World Rallycross Championships <laughs> in Barcelona. And I was like, oh my goodness me. And then we sat down for a, an interview and a chat with um, my good friend, Andrew Coley. Totally bonkers, but brilliant. <laughs> Uh, it was, do you know what? It was part of a series I did last year or two years ago now um, called Dream Jobs. And I got to try different forms of motorsport. And of all the different, I mean, I did amazing stuff monster trucks, Porsche Super Cup, um, drifting, Gymkhana grids, uh, Formula E, all different kinds of things. But the rallycross was the most um, incredible experience. I got dropped straight in the deep end. It was, the, as you say, the World Rallycross round at Barcelona. I'd had one day of testing at Pembury on my own. And then, oh, all of a sudden, I was dropped onto the start line next to, you know, Nicholas Gronholm and Timmy Hansen. And it was it was actually the most nervous I've been since the Olympic final in London and the Kieran. That was, you know, I was look at that moment. I remember thinking, oh, my God, why are you putting yourself through this? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, but after it, when I saw you when I, I think it was after the first the first round, the first race and um, the qualifying round and I stopped open the door there you yeah. were microphone in and I must have just been talking absolute nonsense because I was so full of adrenaline I mean it was yeah. you know it's such a, an exciting form of motorsport you know I love all kinds of motorsport but rallycross really is um it's pretty special yeah it's an incredible product isn't it for tv I think we both likened it in that interview because that was my first time as well in rallycross and we were both <laughs> yeah, probably right. full of adrenaline and chatting <laughs> rubbish but I think we both said it. it's the kind of track cycling of cycling isn't it hmm yeah, well, because it's, you know, most motorsport, it's, you know, even the, the shorter races are 20 minutes or half an hour. But, you know, I, I, I think it's about two minutes, three minutes for a rallycross heat. And, you know, you can win the race on the first corner. If you can get to the first corner in the lead, you can control it. So it is very much like a, a kind of sprint event on the track, like the Kieran, you know, kind of elbows out. There's, there's contact. Um, it's a very physical, you know, and exciting and, and great for the crowds too. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the, my cycling world and, and rallycross. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it then. We're going to start mm. with your um, five life lessons. And what I like, um, my guests go in two directions with this. So some bring five key moments in their lives where they think, oh, okay, so this was something I learned a lesson from. You've actually kind of flipped it, which is something that Matthew Pinsent did as well, another night mm. I've had on the podcast. <laughs> and you've gone with your the lessons that you've learned and the moments that you'll attribute to those lessons which I love. Um, what's your yeah. first one? Um, my first one is that our heroes aren't superhuman. So, you know, I grew up looking up to sporting stars, you know, movie stars, whatever, TV stars. And I just assumed that they were different to me. They were different to the rest of us. They were born that way. They were destined for greatness from the moment they were born. And, you know, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. The more that I've seen, the more I've learned about people um, that are successful in their chosen field, it's that they've found their passion at a young age and they've they've worked incredibly hard at it and they've dealt with the ups and downs. They've, you know, stayed positive when things haven't gone well and they've been resilient. But ultimately they just they've they have worked incredibly hard. And you know, the, the notion of talent is I think it's fed to us constantly. You know, you've got these talent shows on TV, the notion that you just discover you have a talent overnight, bang, you're suddenly famous. And also the, the notion of fame as being an end goal as well without realizing that, you know what, if you can find your passion, if you can enjoy it, and if you can have fun in that whole process, it's so important. But 
but yeah, I met, you know, I've met all my heroes, or not all my heroes, most of my heroes through my life. Um, and you suddenly realize actually these are just normal people there. And, and it actually, the, this, of the, the real light bulb moment for me was when I was, I was sitting in the stands watching the Sydney Olympics and um, it was the kilo. So my teammate, Jason Queeley was, was competing and we were going to be competing together in the team sprint the following day. And it's my first Olympic games. We had no previous Olympic champions in our team, you know, in, in sprinting terms. I don't think, I think the last person that had won anything major was Reg Harris back in the 1950s. So we didn't have any role models or people that we could look up to and, and see as current champions. And Jason was very much an outside chance of a bronze medal. Anyway, he got up there, of course, won the gold me medal against, you know, you know, any expectations from anybody. Even he thought a bronze medal was his best chance. He won the gold medal. And it was just this moment of realization that, well, this is just, just Jason. He's just my mate. He's an ordinary guy. He's, you know, he's just a normal bloke who has found his passion. He's worked hard at it. And he is now the very best in the world. And, and it was this realization of, well, if Jason can do it, maybe I can get close to that. Maybe I can try and emulate him. And he's now my teammate. I get to train with him every day, learn from him. And yeah, that was the moment I realized that an Olympic champion is just a person like you or I, who's, who's worked very, very hard and stuck with it. I think there are two things there. Firstly, that we're all human. And I think that's something people don't realize. And it's something that's being talked about a lot with kind of abuse on social media and where that abuse ends up and knowing that the person on the end of it is a human being and that they may look completely unattainable and can like living in this complete dream world as this big mm -hmm. celebrity, this big hero, but they're just a human being as well. And equally, as sports fans, as sports media, we see a kind of 1% of what you guys are actually doing in your careers. We see that pinnacle peak moment where you're hitting your optimum on the track. We don't see the times you failed in training. Mm. We don't see you vomiting track side. We don't see the bad days. We don't see the injuries. You know, there's this whole 99% of life that, that we as fans and media don't really get to see. And you're so right that they're not just these superhumans who operate at that 1% all the time. It's the peaks and troughs of everyday life. Yeah, exactly. And and athletes can often look so so confident, so supremely confident when they, they stand on the start line. They they look calm, they look composed, but behind the, the, the facade they can be incredibly insecure, they can be incredibly um nervous and and have self doubt. So yeah, it's it's one of these things that you just you assume that because they're professional, because they're successful in what they do, um, you know, that they they have complete confidence in themselves, but they don't. I think athletes professional athletes professional sports people are often amongst the most insecure people on the planet because their 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 kind of identity is based on their the most recent performance you know you're only as good as your last win and um you know you're constantly battling for these tiny fractions to be the best you can um so yeah i think self-doubt is a, is a big part of being an athlete for a lot of them and um, despite how they might appear on the on the outside yeah, you're constantly searching for that next tenth, that next hundredth. You're constantly striving for more. That's sort of the DNA of a, an Olympic successful athlete, isn't it? Can you think back to a specific moment or period in your career where you did feel the levels of insecurity that all athletes can suffer really hit like a height for you? Well, I, I don't think it really peaked. I think it was just in me from the start that I, I just assumed that, you know, when I was race, I used to race BMX as a kid. That's how I got into cycling. So... You know, I watched the film E.T., I saw BMX, I thought, this looks amazing. Um, I was going to ask you about track. that. 
I, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that was written on Wikipedia, and I thought that that's can't absolutely be true. real. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I love it. So I'd it. never seen a BMX bike before. It was the first time. Um, they were brand new in the UK. Watched the film when I was about six, and it was the chase scene at the end where they're going over jumps and kind of around the corners. I thought that looks a lot of fun, and pestered my parents. They got me a, a second hand, just a normal bike. My dad sort of stripped it down, sprayed it black, and put BMX stickers and. BMX handlebars on it and and I was away and started racing when I was about seven at my local track just for fun and it, it kind of spiraled from there I mean I was never very good at it I was I was never the best but I was I, I enjoyed it and I was I was quite good but not not you would never have picked me out at that age as being a potential champion of the future but yeah I had a great time with that but the whole time I think from from the moment I first started right the way through till you know quite a long way through my career I always felt as though you know, I, I don't know that the other the other athletes were better prepared. I think a lot of it was down to perhaps in Britain at that point, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have a history of, of success in trap cycling. We were a real sort of C grade nation back in the, the mid 1990s before lottery funding, before the world class performance program started. And, you know, we didn't have an indoor track until 1994. So you, you train through the summer months, the track would close in September and it would open again in April. Um, we couldn't afford to travel abroad to train. You know, I was I was studying. I was a student. You're you're basically just doing it as a hobby and trying to compete against the best in the world. So when you lined up against them, you felt woefully underprepared. You didn't feel as if you were on the same level. They were also the guys you'd watched on TV or seen in magazines. So you built them up into these these kind of demigods. And then it was slowly over time. And and but then that moment in 2000 certainly was the light bulb moment where I realised. They're just normal people. You know, they have their own insecurities. They have their own doubts. Um, they have their own days where they're feeling good, when they're not feeling quite so good. They are human. And and once you know, once you know you've got a chance, once you know you're on a level playing field, that's when you believe in yourself and you think, well, I've got a chance here. But when you, if you tell yourself that they are better than you before you start, well, then you're, you're never going to beat them. I think that's probably quite comforting for people to hear because those heroes that you looked up to, so many will now look to you and think, well, he was a superstar. He was superhuman. He he operated in a different field. He he was on a, he was in another world, another planet. You know, that's Sir Chris Hoy. But actually, it's I think comforting to hear that incredible sports people and our Olympic heroes all have these insecurities and anxieties and have done throughout the entirety of their career. Yeah, well, I I think the key thing for me was was understanding that it's not about everybody else. It's not about comparing yourself to other people all the time. Of course, in sport, you do. When you get to the competition, you are literally comparing yourself to other people. But in terms of your own preparation and even in the result itself, as long as you are improving, as long as you're better than you were last week, last year, you know, last month, whatever, as long as you can see progression, that is all you can do. You can only be the best that you can be. And, you know, as long as you're chipping away and finding ways to improve, that's that, that's what competition is about. It's about being the best you can be. You can't, you physically can't be better than your best. So there's times where you do give your best and it's not enough, but there's other times where you can be subpar and you might still win a race. And, and it's often you focus on the end result and think that's brilliant. I won the race, but actually there were areas that you, you might be starting to be more vulnerable in. And if you don't address those, if you don't keep trying to be the best you can be, then, then that's when you start to, yeah, start to lose races. Absolutely. And um, we'll move on to your second point, which is an interesting one, because it's about everything we've just talked about, following your passion, believing in yourself and going after your dream 100%. But equally, 
having, like you just said, cycling when you first started wasn't a professional sport. There wasn't the funding there. You had no guarantees. There were no securities within the sport at all. So you have to have a plan B, don't you? Yes. I mean, that was, I mean, following your passion is so important, I think, in life. You have to find what you really enjoy, to find what you care about. That is, that's how you'll, you'll succeed because you, if you can do something that you love every day, then it won't feel like work for a start, but you will work harder at it. It doesn't mean that every single day you'll bounce out of bed thinking, oh, fantastic, I'm riding a bike again today. You know, I, I love riding a bike, but there were days when it was it was very tough and there were days when I didn't want to do it. There were days when my body was aching. It was the last thing I wanted to do was to roll out of bed and do it again. But on the whole, I was doing something that I really cared about and something that I loved. So, you know, that that is how you get the most out of yourself. First of all, finding your passion. And, you know, I didn't just discover it. And that was the one thing I did for, you know, through my whole life. I did all kinds of sports. I tried lots of different things. And I think it's important not to specialize too young. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure on kids to get into, if they're, if they're into sport or music or, or whatever their chosen passion is, start young, focus, do this, do this, do this. But I think it's much more important to get a grounded experience, to have lots of different experiences and then sort of gravitate to the ones you enjoy more. Um, but as I said, you know, you have to have a plan B because the chance of you being the one that gets to stand on the podium to get that Olympic gold medal or to be the one that, that you know, sings that, um, you know, number one single or gets that lead role in a movie or whatever. There's so few people that get that that final end goal. So it can't all be about the end goal. It has to be about the process of what you're doing. You have to love what you do. You have to have a passion for it. Um, and, you know, and life is life is tough. Not everyone gets there. So a plan B, a little a safety net for you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to work hard for your first goal and I saw uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about this saying the complete opposite of what I'm saying he was saying you don't have a plan b because it makes you more hungry it makes you work harder and you focus on on that one thing and you don't have that that luxury of a safety net um and I, I understand that logic but in reality I think that can just add undue pressure and stress and what you're doing the, the the joy of what you you do is is sucked out of it if you if you put so much weight and expectation on your own shoulders. So I say you have a plan B. And for me, that was getting an education. You know, I went to university, got my degree. A lot of that was down to my parents. If, if they hadn't if they hadn't sort of pushed me towards that, I would have happily gone straight into cycling age 17, 18. And, you know, and who knows what would happen after my cycling career. And, and also how much my, my academic career helped my cycling because I did sports science at uni at a time when we didn't have any coaching. Um, you know, there was no full-time support system in, in British cycling at that point. So there were loads of questions about training that I had. And I basically answered them myself. I went out and researched, um, you know, sprint performance and and all the different facets of of, um, of physiology that you require as a sprint athlete. So, yeah, it certainly helped me. But, yeah, have a plan B. It takes the pressure off you. You can enjoy what you do a lot more. If it doesn't work out, you've always got a different route. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's there to catch you. I think it's interesting as well that as a, an athlete, you also sort of need a plan B during your career as well. I know in 2008, for example, you just won three Olympic gold medals. You had a gold from Athens, you had a silver from Sydney. But actually, at any point, you could become injured and you could have had to retire. And mm. then there's no plan B from there. So was that something you were aware of, was building a safety net based on who you'd become as Chris Hoy, the cyclist, as well as having a general safety net overall as well? Well, it, you're right. It, it changes over time. So the, the initial safety net is just, you know, have you got 
any other skills that you can get, you know, you can get a job. Because the practicalities are we all need to pay the mortgage, we all need to put food on the table. You know, there's there's the kind of the basics of life that you have to, you need money for. So you have to have some sort of income. So it's having, well, what, if, if cycling, you know, if I fell off the bike and couldn't ride again, if that was it, tomorrow I can't race ever again, what am I going to do? There has to be some sort of plan for what your next step would be. So, yeah, I had that in the early days. It was, I still don't know what I would have used my, I mean, I started out at uni doing physics and maths and I did a year of that and thought, not really enjoying this. I'd rather do something that I actually have an interest in. So I went towards sports science, but yeah, it, I still don't really know what I would have used the degree for. I guess it would have been something in, in the world of sport. I still have a passion for sport um, and sporting performance, but it was certainly having the plan B, having a thought of, well, do you know what? Now that you have won an Olympic gold medal, the, other doors open and other opportunities come along and there's new things you could do. And I, I didn't want to wait until I retired to then go, well, what, what am I going to do next? So there was always a plan in the background, sort of formulating a plan for, for retirement. A lot of that was down to my, my manager, Rob Woodhouse. He was a swimmer for Australia in the 80s. He got a bronze in, in LA in 84. And then when he retired, he set up his own business managing athletes. So he'd been through that process himself before. He knew that you have to have some sort of clear focus you've been driven on this one focus for so long and then your career ends if you don't have something to keep you occupied that's when you know you can get up into all sorts of trouble and and you see athletes that really struggle when they retire so yeah i, I kind of had this this plan lining up for when i was going to retire and it, it was changing all the time but by the time i got to london or finished after london i kind of thought this is the end now it was a matter of putting the the plan into place and just very quickly on retirement was that decision for you an easy one you've mentioned there how difficult retirement can be for athletes and certainly when that decision is taken out of an athlete's hand it's it's all the more difficult it's all the more bitter but for you was it like do you know what i have done it i've got seven olympic medals six of them are gold i'm done and i'm happy it was i definitely the having the home olympics as a, a focus was a huge a huge um you know a carrot for me to chase and i knew that to have this opportunity to have you know, to compete in front of a home crowd was something that not many athletes get. So that was the real focus to get to London. I didn't want to think about what would happen after London because it was such a, a struggle just to get there. I was 36. Um, you know, normally in sprint events, the guys are early 20s to mid 20s. I was literally hanging on by my, my fingernails. Um, you know, I was injured all the time. I was having, I was getting beaten more regularly. And it was, it was a tough 18 months leading up to London, but I qualified, got my place in the queue and got my place in the team sprint, won both events, you know, the, the dream ending. And then there, there's always a temptation to try and go a little bit further. You, when you're on top of the world, you think, well, I can just keep going a bit longer, one more year, one more year. And it was two years to Glasgow, to the Commonwealth Games in 2014. And that would have been, you know, being greedy, that would have been the perfect ending to have the Home Olympics, then the Home Commonwealth Games. But... You know, I got back into training about two or three months after London and it was almost as though my body had just said, you know what, enough is enough here. I waved the white flag. I was getting injured. I was getting struggling with recovery. Um, and I think also I, I'd sort of, I felt like, you know what, this is a nice, a nice way to end it, a nice way to stop. Not many athletes get the chance to, to choose to retire at the top. Um, and, and I'm glad I did because it's, I still I had a fantastic time in Glasgow. I actually got to see um, parts of, of a, a major major games that you wouldn't as an athlete I experienced it all it was a wonderful game so I don't look back and regret and think I wonder what would have happened 
you know, I'm totally content that I, I was very lucky to have had a long career. But having said that, that moment when you had a press conference, a little press conference at Murrayfield Stadium, um, just to announce my retirement, I'd been on holiday for six weeks. You know, I, I knew in my mind it was set in stone, I was retiring, and it was all lined up. Walked into the press conference, and there's just this, the words stuck in my throat, because I didn't, I knew that until you actually say it, you know, I'm, not, I'm not retired yet, until you say the words, um, you can still keep going. And it was this feeling of, I'm a, do I really want to do this? Am I really going to put an end to this all? And it was it was quite an emotional moment, really, sort of getting the words out and realizing that's that's the end of uh, that part of my life. Yeah, the point of no return, isn't it? That mm. that was that moment. It was done. But I think it's lovely that yeah. you can you can sit here now and say, well, I achieved what I wanted and I did it on my own terms and and went out happy. I think that's that's really important. Um, your third point is a really good one, and it's about failure, which I think. Um, is a crucial part of life and you're right in saying we fear it but actually when you look back on it you see that you've got the most from it and that you've learned the biggest toughest lesson you can and come out of it stronger and better yeah i think i, I it's a cliche and it's a sort of thing you see on you know on instagram posts all the time you know but failure is where the lessons are and i really believe that you know you you learn way more from from your defeats than you do from your your victories. And an example of that would be that once oh, back in in two thousand, I became world champion for the first time. Um, I won the Commonwealth Games. It was a real breakthrough year for me. My first individual titles, and I I sort of felt well, I've got the winning formula now. I've got this this training program that that worked for me for the two thousand and two season. All I've got to do is replicate that next year and do it exactly the same, and I'll win the world championship and I'll be you know on top of the world yet again and I did that and I was fearful of change because I thought well I don't want to change anything this is this is the perfect formula but all that happens is you do the same it gives you the same output that output isn't always necessarily going to be enough to win the following year because the bar is raised your rivals have responded they've raised the bar and you come back and do exactly the same thing but they've they've kind of leapfrogged you so I turned up at Stuttgart at the world championships in 2003 and I did a it was a reasonable ride same as the previous year but the rest had all responded and I came fourth and I was absolutely devastated. And I went into, into Olympic year in Athens, not even really sure if I was going to make the team because um, we had four riders in GB who were fighting for the, the, the two individual places. And I was now ranked third in the team. So there was, there was no question I had to change something. I had to reassess all my, my kind of preparations and look at the whole thing, changed it all. Uh, well, not changed it all, changed the, you know, as, as my coach used to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, when you want to keep the things that are good and get rid of the things that aren't working. So focus on um, just little tweaks here and there. And those little tweaks were, were enough to uh, to help me win in Athens in, in 2004. So, yeah, I think failure, we learn from it. The other thing is that every single person in the world fails. So it doesn't matter who your, your idols are, your heroes are. They've all had moments where they failed. They've all had moments where it hasn't gone the way they hoped it would. We assume that they've had this easy, natural, continuous progression from the moment they started to the moment they are now, but that's not the case. And and failure is, it's so important. And and to expect it, you know, it, it is going to happen when it does happen. Don't see it as a disaster. See it as an opportunity to learn. Use that information. Use that experience. Make yourself stronger. Bounce back from it. And you know, you can only, as I said earlier, you can only be the best that you can be. You can't be better than your best. As long as you give your best, if you lose that isn't a failure. Um, it's a chance to learn from what the other person's done or how they've performed. But 
yeah, it's it's and I think yeah, failure can be feared so much. There's so much fear of failure. If you dwell on that, you'll never be at your best. Um, so trying to focus on what you can do, focus in the process of what you need to do, and you get the best out yourself. Absolutely right. And you're, you're so true. It's so true what you said there on failure and, and how much we as society fear it, how much we feel shame from it, how embarrassed mm. we are. And I think it's only when you get um, older, <laughs> I mean, I'm now in my 30s, I know you're a little bit older, Chris, that you realise that. <laughs> just, a and it's just, a, just a little. Just a little, just a tad. Um, but you do, you, you realise that, gosh, actually failure yes, it's really hard and it really hurts. And actually there's no getting away from that. And you've got to sit with that feeling and process it and think, right, well, how did it happen? Why did it happen? And what can I learn from it? Like you've just said. And that leads quite nicely onto your fourth moment or point, which is perspective, because I think failure gives you perspective as well. And when you get through what you deem to be the worst thing in the entire world and the worst failure and all these sort of small, insignificant, trivial things actually in the grand scheme of life and where we are on this planet, you realise that, oh, actually, it it wasn't so bad after all. And if I can get through that, I can get through this. And if I can get through this, then I'll learn from it and I'll I'll be bigger and better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 a, a hard one to balance out because you've got to care about what you do. You've got to have, you know, the reason that you, you put so much into your chosen um, field, whatever it is you do, is because you because it's important to you. But it's understanding that it, whilst it's important to you, you know, cycling around a track, around a wooden track in anti-clockwise circles, it's, it's a pretty trivial thing. It's life. It's not life or death. You know, you're not saving lives. It's not like you're on the front line. Um, doing something really important it's it's trivial and it's entertainment for people they they'll cheer you on they want you to win but ultimately they're not going to go away devastated if you don't win a bike race um, and it's it's understanding that most of the ex- expectation pressures is from yourself it's not you can it, it can even you know going into london 2012 as one of the the, sort of the, the more um i, I guess the, the the media were really kind of anchoring on a few athletes in particular I was one of the, the sort of bigger names going into London but ultimately it's it, you know you can still feel that pressure but it's the pressure you put on yourself so if you can get perspective if you can understand that you know do you know what life will go on whether you win this race or not nothing is going to change um Steve Peters was our, our team psychologist Dr Steve Peters an amazing man um really helped me a lot particularly leading up to London and and his you know the kind of helicopter technique as he used to talk about focusing on a situation that's causing you stress and then imagining yourself getting into a helicopter and sort of rising up and looking down on the situation, realizing, first of all, how small you are, how small the situation is, looking out around and realizing, look at all these other houses and people gathering, you know, all the things happening around you that you know nothing about, all these little micro things that are super important to you at that particular moment, but in the grand scheme of things are actually really totally irrelevant. And when you sort of step back and get perspective, you actually go, well, do you know what? This isn't the most important thing in the world. You know, he used to talk about, I'll give you an example of a job that is stressful. <laughs> you know, he was trying to make me feel better about my, my cycling. He said, he said, I used to work, um, basically his job was to interview serial killers and people that had done terrible things who were in high security prisons. And he was the one who had to determine whether they were, they'd come up for, for um, release and whether they were safe to be released into society or whether they were still a complete danger and would go out and reoffend, And they knew what the questions that he was going to ask them and vice versa. And you have this little dance where he'd ask the question, they'd give the response they knew they wanted. 
And he'd keep doing it and then come from different angles, trying to ask, trying to cause a trigger or something that would give a little flash that would show that that person still had that desire to do these awful things they'd done before. And he said, and if you don't get that response, if you can't show, you have to prove that there's still a danger. Otherwise, they will be released. And it's, he said, imagine that pressure. Imagine the, the thought that, you know, if you don't do your job to the best of your ability, they're going to be out there released into the public. So, and he said that for his, you know, he, he wasn't sleeping. He was having all kinds of difficulties coping with that pressure. And he learned to cope with it by, by basically compartmentalizing his life. So saying, the moment I leave work and I drive home, that, that drive home is the decompression. And when I come home, you know, it doesn't matter what I've got the next day or what I've done that day. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that where it is. I'll always have a pad of paper and a pen so I can write things down. If something pops into my head when I'm sleeping or if I have an idea or I've thought about something, I can write it down, but I'm not going to engage with those thoughts at a time that is, is inappropriate. So, you know, you have to allow yourself a chance to step back and to get perspective from what you're doing. If you immerse yourself in the thing the whole time, it will wear you down. You can only do it for a short while before you get burnt out. So, um, you know, he told me that story and I suddenly realized, you know what, <laughs> winning a bike race isn't actually that important after all. But, you know, I, we discussed this as well before about becoming a parent, becoming a father. When you have children, you, your outlook on life changes drastically. And particularly if your kids aren't that well, you know, our first, um, first child, Callum, he was 11 weeks premature. He was born weighing two pounds, two ounces, you know, less than a kilo, this tiny little thing. And he was in intensive care for a long time. And it was it was a really tough moment and or the tough, tough year or so, really. Um, and that gives you perspective. That makes you realize, you know, what everything else in your life can be fitted in, can be dealt with at a later moment. As long as your child, as long as your, you know, your kids are okay and healthy and happy, that is your number one priority and everything else shuffles down um, in the order of importance. Yeah, it's about perspective, isn't it? And, and realizing that you're not the center of the universe. It's quite an ego-driven thing, mm. isn't it, actually, to, to feel, to not have that perspective and to put yourself in the center and all of your trivial issues. Uh, it's very much driven by ego, by fear as well. Um, I think a lot of people got perspective from last year as well, and, and indeed the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, that suddenly our lives were stripped to the absolute bare bones. Everything was taken away from us. All of our freedoms, you know, perceivably, being able to go to the pub, being able to go to the cinema, to go to the shops when we wanted, to get what we needed from the supermarket shelves. And actually we were left with, am I healthy? Are my friends and family healthy? Do I have a roof over my head and do I have an income? If you can answer yes to those things, you're kind of doing yeah. all right at this yeah. point in our lives, you know? Exactly, exactly. And it's it's easy when you look back on it or when you've got a bit of, you know, breathing space, perspective is a wonderful thing. And you can just say, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's great. And, and it all makes sense when we talk about it just now, but it's when you're in the thick of it, in the thick of a really stressful moment, that is the bit, if you can have that ability to, to have that perspective and to step back, um, you know, that that is an incredibly powerful skill to have. And it doesn't come naturally, I don't think. I think all of us as human beings, we, we, we immerse ourselves in the moment. We don't consider the sort of wider picture. It's all about the here and the now. And and that's that's completely normal. But if you can allow yourself to just have a bit of perspective or remind yourself to try, um, that's one of the biggest things that's helped me. Um, but yeah, having said all that, you know, sort of giving out these words of wisdom, um, you know, one of the things you, you talk to people and then they ask for advice or, you know, like even just now that like we're just doing just now, even experts should always be looking for ways to learn and to, to gain new knowledge. And you never know everything. And it's, you know, you, you talk to someone like Steve Peters, you think, well, he has all the, 
the knowledge in the world when it comes to this sort of stuff. And yet I'm sure he goes through moments like himself in his life. He has to try and utilize these techniques and remind himself um, of the importance of following these very simple rules. Absolutely right. Um, and just on, you touched on your son Callum there, who obviously had a really difficult start to life. As an athlete, you would be somebody who lives with everything entirely within your control. You control when you eat, when you sleep, when you train, everything is to a schedule. Suddenly something was happening in your life where you were not only out of control, but you were completely helpless and could do nothing. Mm. I think for any human being, as we mentioned earlier, you are just also a human being. That's an incredibly difficult thing to overcome and to, to cope with and to deal with. As an athlete who is so used to living life selfishly in, in the nicest way and yeah, with that course. element of control, it must have just been a, a complete sort of, um, I'm gonna say shitstorm basically, just a complete <laughs> yeah, and utter hell yeah. really. It was, and it was, and what was hard, I think the hardest part of it was was the fact that it was incredible. It was even worse, I think, for Sarah as the mother. You being separated from you, the natural processes. You you give birth to your baby, and you get to see your baby and hold it and feed it, and and you're you're with it all the time. And she didn't see Callum for the first forty hours. You know, she was downstairs in, in a different ward. He was upstairs. She wasn't well enough to go and see him for for forty hours. And it was, you know, that, that whole process was incredibly tough for her. And then it wasn't just a matter of, well, you've seen him now, everything's fine. It was this, you know, you go in and see your child for three or four hours and you, the nurse tells you how he's been and what he's been doing. And and you get to, you just basically sit and look in this little plastic box and this tiny little thing with loads of tubes and wires going in and machines beeping and in the dark, in the quiet. And, and you sit there and all you get to do is, you know, you get to change his nappy, which is like some sort of, Krypton factor challenge or crystal maze challenge you put your hands into the box and you kind of and he's he's so small as well he literally could fit into your two hands like that this tiny little nappy that's the size of a you know a large postage stamp and you're trying to sort of fit it around the the cables and the wires not wanting to hurt him it's it's terrible it's a really really tough time but at the same time you don't want to complain because you know that there's babies that don't make it that far there's always someone that's having a harder time than you. So you feel guilty for moaning about the situation you're in or what are you feeling bad about it? And so you're just constantly, and even, you know, even with Sarah as well, she was having a much worse time than me. So you don't want to complain, but it's, you know, everybody is going through their own struggle um, and it's, and it's on different levels in life for everybody. Um, but it doesn't mean that your struggle isn't real and it isn't important. Now, there's a great saying that um, I often turn to because there's a bit of a misery Olympics, isn't there, at the moment where um, somebody will say, <laughs> yeah. oh, lockdown's tough, isn't it? And someone else goes, well, yeah, but imagine if you had to walk for water in oh. Africa and you're like, yeah, but that doesn't lessen the struggles that yeah. some people are having right now. And it's um, just because somebody's broken their leg doesn't mean your stub toe doesn't hurt. The Very level good. of pain. Very good. Oh, yeah, you can have it. It's probably you yeah, put it in an Instagram. You. Instagram post. <laughs> yeah. I love them. I love them, honestly. <laughs> that's so um, true, isn't it? And it's, it's you know, so Twitter, true. yeah, just, just you know, you post something on social media and within, you know, five minutes, there'll be someone telling you that, well, you know, you've got it easy. What, exactly as you said, you know, what about this? What about that? You could, you know, I've had this worse. Well, that's, that's really, I'm really sorry to hear that, but this is my story. I'm telling you what's happened to me today and, you know, everybody else. It's, it's just this, this kind of pile on of, yeah, who has the worst story or the, you know, the most negative um, experience of that situation. 
Yeah, no, you're so right. Um, your fifth point, I think, um, could sound. I'm going to be. I'm going to be a bit nasty here. Quite boring because nobody likes planning, <laughs> do they? Um, yeah, true. But it's very true. You're absolutely right that planning is crucial. And you know, I say it's boring. I have notebooks full to the brim of to-do lists, of plans, of mind maps. I love a plan. Well, I've I've always enjoyed it and it's from a quite young age and um yeah the, the point number five is that i once read that warren buffet he said is it warren buffet is that is how you pronounce his name some uh, um, big right. american I'm, yeah entrepreneur i mean if he's massively famous i should really know how to pronounce his name i know um, <laughs> buffet i like I the think quote sounds... anyway yeah reminds like me of food so as well was, <laughs> well exactly um but yeah he said that an idiot with a plan um can be a, a genius without a plan so you know, I've, I've always believed that it's important to know where you're going and to have, um, you know, plans can change and they can be flexible, but to have an idea of what you're doing for that day, for that week, for that month, for that year, setting a goal. And, and you know, I, I didn't, I guess I'd always been that sort of person, but when I was about 14, um, it was a local cycling club in Edinburgh. I was, you know, very much just doing it as a hobby at that point. I was pretty average there was maybe about 12 or 15 of us in the junior part of this club and the coach for the club say the coach it was a guy who ran it voluntarily a guy called Ray Harris um, it was his hobby too to have a you know to run a cycling club but he was ahead of his time and that he, he called us all together and said look I want to discuss the concept of goal setting and planning and it sounds really grand now but you know compared to we were just literally these kids on bikes um, having a bit of fun and we were all pretty rubbish. Um, you know, I wasn't the best in the room or the best in, you know, Edinburgh or Scotland at that time. I was just, you know, a very average cyclist. But he said, I want you to write down your lifetime goal in cycling, what you would, you know, aspire to achieve, um, your four-year goal, what you want to achieve in the next four years, and then your goal for this season. So, you know, I wrote down, I want to become Scottish junior champion or Easter Scotland champion um, this year. Within four years, I want to be on the senior team and ultimate goal and I thought well if you're going to aim high you know if you're going to dream you may as well aim really high and I wrote down um, gold medal in 2004 at the Athens Olympics in the kilo and so I was only like 14 at the time but I thought well I'll be 28 then that's probably you know likely to be my, my peak in my career if you can call that a career at that point point. Um, and so then we read out the goals to the whole to the whole group and I pretty much got mocked by my mates for writing such a ridiculous goal because you know there was absolutely no, not a hope in hell of me doing that. Any of us, you know, we were all just sort of having a bit of fun. Um, but my thought was, well, if you've got the chance to dream, why not aim high? And, and Ray took me seriously and he said, well, that's that's great. If that really is your, your dream and you really want to achieve it, you've got to turn that dream into a goal. You've got to break it down. You've got to start making stepping stones towards that goal. And all you've got to do is hit the next stepping stone. So have a plan for what you want to do. And And it sounds really obvious and really simple, but how many of us really do plan out our days or plan out, you know, even basic things like when you've got kids and you've got so many other things going on around the house and you've got jobs to do. If you plan your day out and if you actually have a bit of structure to what you're doing, you'll find that I personally find I get a lot more done with a, a clear plan. So planning is so important. And yeah, I, you know, I've, I've always been that way. I've, I've always known what I'm going to do. I've always tried to have this um, you know, clear pathway to success if you like and, and having stepping stones and it takes away the stress because if you've got this massive goal on the on the horizon and you think well i'm only down here and this goal is is right here you know is, is miles away you get disheartened because you're so far off where you want to be but 
if all you have to, if you've got the plan in place all you have to focus on is the next step so um you know it could be you know even looking at lockdown the way i've approached lockdown is the way i used to approach training camps that you would go you don't think well this is an eight week camp i'm on week two my body is right on the cusp of breaking i can barely get out of bed um i'm you know this is awful how am i going to cope with the next three four five six weeks whatever you don't think like that you think well all i've got to do is get out of bed that's the first t- you know tick out of bed next have a shower tick have your breakfast right get your kit packed get down to the track you know get to the gym whatever it is you're doing and when you get to the gym don't think i've got to do all these exercises all these reps and sets say right warm up what i've got to do now one step at a time and it's and you almost trick your 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 body into sort of saying well i can do this one thing okay i can do that that's fine well don't worry about it. we're not doing anything more just do this one thing okay i'll do that get that effort done right on to the next one one at a time and and you can cope with you know you can always do one more step one more revolution one more um repetition um but it's when you start thinking i've got so many more to do i can't um, that's it pull the plug stop um so yeah i've always thought a plan as has been a really important part of my um success in cycling certainly but in life in general i, I try to apply it to everything i do and i feel like i get a lot more done um having a plan I love an itinerary. When you just mentioned mm. there about lockdown, I look back on some of my earlier diaries from kind of like last March, April, and actually I'd written down, I'd itemized my day by hour to know what I'd be doing and to keep me kind of productive and progressive mm. and, and to stay on track because it's very easy at the moment, certainly to just sink onto the sofa and watch another Netflix episode and another and go to the fridge and that's all you're doing. So actually yeah. to keep yourself motivated and busy and productive that's that was my coping mechanism absolutely right mm. um i really enjoy it but I, I don't know what it would be like for those where it perhaps doesn't come so naturally because i love yeah, a list i think it's well I, I totally get it no we're not all the same and and i'm not saying that this is how everybody should live their lives but it's you know lessons that i've learned in my in my life that have helped me this is that's one of the biggest things is having a plan um and i guess it's a control thing as well it's it's trying to take control in a situation where there might be a, you know, so many variables, so many things going on. If you can grasp onto something and say, well, do you know what? Um, at least I know I'm going to do this, this, and this. There's loads of things I have no control over, but I'm going to try and do this to, my, to the best of my ability um, and see how it pans out. But it's, yeah, it's even the people who are skeptical, even people who don't like plans, even who people who like to go with the flow, um, to even just have a, a, a vague plan of what you'd like to achieve or, or you know, a, a longer term plan. It's, you can dream about it, you can talk about it, you can wish it's gonna happen, but if you don't actually have some sort of um, yeah, pathway to it, then it, it will stay a dream. It will just be this dream you think about or talk about. A number of people that you say, oh, I'd love to learn to speak French. I wish I spoke another language or, you know, oh, I'd love to do a marathon, <laughs> marathon one day. Well, you know, it's, these are the things that you, and, and you prioritize, of course, because you, we can't all do everything. You know, there's there's a million and one things in life we'd love to do, and you prioritize them. But if it really is important to learn Cantonese, or to to run a marathon, or to climb Kilimanjaro, or whatever it is you want to do, you know, climb Everest, then then say right, that is the goal, and that, this is something I'm really really passionate about. I really want to do this. How am I going to do it? Well, I don't know anything about speaking Cantonese. Well, where do I start? You know, do some research, break it down find out how long it's going to take, how many lessons, how you would go about it. Um, and to me, that is, I, personally, as that kind of person, that is how I operate and that's how I get the best out of myself. And of course, it's not it's not for everybody, but um, 
yeah, it's definitely helped me. Well, you are one of our most successful and one of our most decorated Olympians. So I think it's a good lesson, isn't it, for everyone? Well, you know, it might, it might help you ride around in circles on a bike. Who knows if it'll help you in other things? But um, yeah, it's definitely helped me to get, get a few bits of metal on a ribbon. So there you go. Who knows? <laughs> oh, Chris, absolutely brilliant. Um, that's all the questions from me. But I have asked um, for the general public to send in their questions as mm. well. And I was meant to pick one yeah, um, but you didn't get any, so... No, I had a few. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so this is from uh, Laura in Gloucestershire. No, <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> I have two questions, um, yep. one of which is from um, a boy called Zach Benjamin, and he says, Hi, Chris, I'm a huge fan. My question is, what was your biggest struggle through your career? And he goes on to say, I have autism, and your book really inspired me, so thank you very much. Oh, wow. Well, that's... Very nice. Good, great to hear that, Zach. Um, yeah, my biggest struggle through my career, I think, would be lack of self-belief and and not believing that I had the ability to to become a champion in cycling and always seeing other people as well, more talented or just better than me. Um, and it, it took time to sort of prove it to myself. And I, I won my first world title in 2002. I was 26 at the time, which is pretty old um, by, by track cycling. Um, standards I suppose so yeah I guess it's understanding that not to worry about other people not to worry about what they're doing not to think about not don't keep comparing yourself to other people just do what makes you happy give it your all give it your very very best work hard at it um, and expect it not to work out all the time and when it doesn't work out learn from that come back stronger and give it your all but yeah I certainly I I was I lacked that super confidence that a lot of people tell you know will say they have whether they actually have it or not who knows but um that that all you know incredible confidence uh, that was something i didn't have from a from a young age and the athletes are perceived to have as well so it's difficult to yeah. keep that perception yeah. up when actually inside yeah. you're thinking oh, I, oh i'm not sure about anything um, you might think I you're the only one that's nervous as well you know you, you turn up at a race and you look around and think well they all look completely confident but it's it's often a game face so you know you you know that other people are going through it too. And when, when other people are going through it too, that gives you a bit of hope and a bit of confidence in yourself. So yeah, believe in yourself. It's that people always tell it to you, believe in yourself, but it, it's, it, it doesn't always happen. So if it doesn't happen, then don't worry. Absolutely right. And um, I couldn't not ask this one. It's from your super fan, um, Australian <laughs> professional bike rider for Cofidis, Nathan Haas. <laughs> and Nathan, oh, wow. I know, I know. He has asked, <laughs> is Hi, it- Nathan. I don't know if this is true or not, and I've even Googled it and nothing came up. So I'm thinking that this is Nathan possibly stitching me up, but it is. <laughs> or stitching me up. Both of us. Is it we'll true see. that Chuck Norris asked to borrow your legs for a photo shoot? <laughs> I don't know if he's referring to that. I've got a, a gingery beard at the moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've got, there's a mate of mine who's um, a racing driver called Marino Franchitti. Um, you know, he's, Le Mans podium winner, um, Sebring winner, all these kind of massive achievements. His, his brother's Dario Franchitti, um, IndyCar champion. And yeah, since I got into motorsport, I got to know Dario and, and um, Marino um, pretty well. And Marino was always like constantly on Twitter. or He's basically a troll on Twitter. He's sending messages with pictures of um, Chuck Norris. So I think I might have to try and get rid of this beer at some point just, just to get that troll off my back. But, um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nathan. It is true. Yeah, I, I'm a leg double for Chuck Norris. Um, doesn't pay very well, but um, it's a passion. So, you know, 
And you've got to follow your passions, but have a plan B. Exactly. So who would your who would your plan B leg double be? Who um, who else would you like to be a leg double Ooh, for? If Chuck a leg double for oh Chuck throws you out. Mm. Well, who could I be a leg double for? I'll tell you who's got the most famous legs in the world of track cycling is uh, Robert Forsterman, but he's they about are. a foot shorter than me, so it'd look Let's a bit see. odd if we're my legs and his legs. His his legs are yeah they're like cartoon. Um, yeah dimensions but he's as i say he's about five foot must be about five foot six so he's quite short for a for a track sprinter but it's like he's been compressed and he's just gone that way and um yeah i think they're like 20 28 inch thighs or something like that it's it's, it's amazing but, it's um, but yeah like he's got very short it's ridiculous he's, i mean he's he's i mean you see him on a bike and because his yeah, his legs are short so his femur is quite short as well so like lifting weights he has that sort of mechanical advantage and he can lift absolutely ridiculous weights in the gym like you can just knock out reps of 250 kilo squats no problem at all whereas most folk would only ever dream of doing that for one repetition um but yeah he's we had a few battles over the years he's a, a really tough competitor um but yeah his legs are yeah they're, they're sort of world famous and there's a good there's an interesting video actually on youtube of him trying to toast uh, he's trying to power a toaster till the, the bread's toasted so i think it's he has to do like it's a minute at 700 watts or 800 watts um and eventually when the toast is done when there's enough power the toast pops up so you can think of the think of the ways you could save money at home now you're in lockdown turn off the power get your turbo linked up to the, the toaster you could do all sorts of things yeah it's there's a whole opportunity of careers after he finishes cycling as well yeah i'm talking not about sure. plan b yeah, there we go. It's all come full circle. I love it. If you haven't seen Robert Forsterman's legs, please Google them because they are absolutely obscene. Um, Chris, we've gone wildly <laughs> off topic, but I love that. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Uh, I've loved having you on and, and hearing about your career and, and everything you've learned from it as well. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you as well for, for helping out on the Zwift rides recently. That was, oh, that was I know. awesome. How Charity, were they? So, I miss yeah, them on a yeah. Sunday, you know. Well, we're, we're going to do them every every the last Sunday of every month, same sort of time, about nine o'clock in the morning. So any anyone out there that's on Zwift that wants to join us, um, last Sunday of each month, it's a Doddy Weirs charity um, ride on Zwift. I think it's down as mine. It's my ride for Doddy. Um, but yeah, please join us. So and Laura, if you could come along again and support it, that'd be amazing. Because absolutely, we can always do with a bit of help. Yeah, absolutely for sure. And it also it gets me go. It gets me up in the morning on a Sunday, mm. get some hours in. They're good rides as well, aren't they? Oh, so they that, were great. Just over an hour, and it's it's just that kind of intensity that you're not absolutely struggling, but you you feel like you had a workout at the end of it, and it's and it's quite sociable too, and everyone's chatting and and having fun. Yeah, for sure. Although I don't think we actually ever rode together, Chris, because your version of two to two point five <laughs> watts per kilo was something like two hundred and twenty-five watts, whereas mine is about one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty. Ah, but so, it's all relative to your body weight, though. Well, so, you know, it's, I, yeah, on, it's on the hills, it's, it's to be the same, I think. But on the flat, it's yeah, you probably it's harder to keep up if you're if you're lighter on the flat. But yeah, but no, it was it was great though. It was really good, and there was loads. I mean, that last one we had about sixteen hundred people along. It was fantastic yeah and you're a big part of it so so thank you no thank you very much for holding them and i look forward to the next one and so yeah end of each month on a sunday end of each month everyone and zwift get involved excellent brilliant stuff thank you so much chris i'll chat to you soon thanks laura take care cheers bye not sure what i've signed myself up for there but do join us on zwift for more social rides on the last sunday of every month all for the My Name is Doddy charity, raising more funds to help us beat motor neuron disease. 
Well, big thank you to Chris as well. I find it remarkable that one of our most successful Olympians says his biggest struggle in that long and extraordinary career was not believing in himself. I hope we can all take some comfort in that and the inspiring chat we had. What a legend. That's it for today. Don't forget, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a review for the podcast as well. Lessons Learned is out weekly, this series dropping every Monday. So I'll be back next time with another brilliant guest from the world of sport to reflect on the lessons that we learn in every human experience. Until then, take care and see you soon.